This audio presentation is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision making through research and analysis. Good afternoon, and welcome to this Policy Circle call with the experts. I'm Jeff Heide, Director of Media Relations at RAND. Today, we'll be discussing the direction of foreign policy during President Trump's first 100 days in office. These calls are one of the many benefits of being a Policy Circle, RAND Next, or Next to Leaders member. And we thank you for your support. So the Trump presidency reaches its 100th day on Saturday. Two of RAND's senior foreign policy experts are joining me here in our Arlington, Virginia office to discuss what those 100 days indicate about the direction of foreign policy ahead. We have Ambassador Jim Dobbins, senior fellow and distinguished chair in diplomacy and security at RAND, his memoir, Foreign Service, Five Decades on the Front Lines of American Diplomacy, will be published in June. Linda Robinson, a senior policy analyst and terrorism expert at RAND. She just returned from Syria and Iraq, which she has visited several times already this year, and observed firsthand the close proximity of U.S. Special Operations Forces to ISIS, Syrian, Iranian, and Russian forces. Jim, uh, let me start with you. The first 100 days of our presidency marks no official deadline for anything, as far as I'm aware. So why do we pay such attention to it? Well, I think it's as good a benchmark as any to determine how a new presidency is working out. Um, and frankly, over the years, um, uh, successive presidents have tried to um, uh, have tried to put enough accomplishments on the table during this uh, early period to to indicate the direction of their presidency. So it's not a magic date, but it's as good as any. Um, and uh, and everybody's always interested in how a new administration is shaping up. Are there any particular foreign policy or national security appointments or decisions in these first three months that indicate anything to you? Well, I think his appointments indicate a more mainstream uh, national security apparatus than one might have expected during the campaign. So um, the State Department, the Defense Department, the National Security Council um, are uh, staffed with uh, knowledgeable people, um, uh, uh, professionals in most cases, um, uh, with a good deal of experience in, uh, in the international realm, and views that are consistent with the success of American administrations over the years. Um, uh, so I think the important the, the the appointment process, although it's been slow and although there are a lot of positions still to fill, so far has been encouraging for those who uh, were hoping for some degree of continuity uh, in uh, administration foreign policy. I think this is largely true of the few policy areas that have been articulated. Um, uh, the, some of the more extreme positions in the campaign. Uh, or in the first few weeks of the presidency have been backed away from. So we're accepting the one-China policy. Um, we haven't walked away, so far at least, from the nuclear agreement with Iran. Uh, we haven't begun uh, negotiating, uh, renegotiating NAFTA, and, we're, and there's no sign that we're actually going to simply walk out of that agreement. Um, so there's certainly changes uh, on the margins in policy, but there's more continuity than one might have expected. Linda, what strikes you from the first 100 days? What are we learning? Well, I would like to emphasize, I think we're still really waiting for the outlines of key policies. So I would say it's striking um, the absence of clarification, and we did not have a lot of detailed policy um, prescriptions that came out during the campaign. There were 
there were some markers uh, laid down and some broad statements made. Um, and particularly, I think, in the foreign policy uh, arena, we're still waiting on two of the areas I follow most closely, which is the counter-ISIS campaign and the broader counter-terrorism uh, strategy and the role that will play vis-a-vis -vis some of the other bigger geopolitical issues. Um, that You, of course, had a big change with regard to the uh, tone and posture vis-a-vis -vis Russia. Um, and, of course, living here in Washington, um, there is huge focus on the congressional uh, committee investigations of the role of Russia in the uh, election campaign and related uh, events. But I think all of that has gone to temper a bit what many had thought might be an early U.S.-Russia rapprochement of sorts. That certainly uh, doesn't appear to be anywhere on the uh, horizon, and that, of course, has great implications for what we might expect with regard to NATO and Europe and what we might expect with regard to the Middle East policy. So you don't think U.S.-Russia rapprochement is in the cards at this point? Um, I don't personally see it. And again, we're, we're I think, waiting um, for a lot more detail and certainly declared policies. And yet friendliness with China has uh, seemed to, to uh, accelerate to a certain extent. Have you? Well, I would just say I'm not an Asia expert, but I would say I think the meeting uh, went fairly well. Um, and I think that, that Trump's backing off of the pledge to declare China a currency manipulator in the face of, of course, voluminous evidence that that was an outdated um, position. Uh, I think the door is open perhaps for uh, diplomatic dialogue, but clearly there are uh, things that China has been doing in the South China Sea uh, that cause concern and are likely to merit and warrant some kind of response from this administration. Jim, are you surprised that uh, there have not been bigger, more dramatic shifts? I mean, you mentioned that one China policy remains in place, uh, don't appear to be walking away from nuclear policy, not killing NAFTA. NATO's not obsolete after all. Right. What do you what do you make of uh, of this shift? Is this just simply going from campaign rhetoric to reality? I mean, I think it's it's quicker and more dramatic than I would have expected. I, I would have expected reality to set in. Uh, I would have expected the complexities of the international situation to impose themselves on the administration. Eventually, it's occurred a little more quickly than one might have expected. The question is, will it endure or will we have further shifts back to the more extreme positions that were uh, expressed during the campaign on some of these issues? Uh, I, I think it's still open whether we'll continue to adhere to the nuclear agreement with Iran. It's open whether we'll pull out of the Paris Agreement on climate change or not. Um, uh, NATO could turn out to be obsolete after all. There are certainly going to be trade tensions within NAFTA. We already have uh, uh, some difficulties with Canada. Um, and, uh, and the trade issues with China have not been resolved. They're simply uh, out there on the horizon at some stage. And Trump has rather explicitly said that depending on how helpful China is on Korea will depend on how hard he pushes some of those trade issues. So uh, I think there's enough uncertainty left so that one shouldn't uh, become complacent. But, uh, but so far, so good. Now, this could be the man falling down, passing the 33rd floor and saying, so far, so good. But um, 
and and what we haven't seen yet, and what often occurs in an early administration is a real crisis and some serious mistake. Uh, the classic is um, Kennedy's Bay of Pigs invasion. But another example of a catastrophic mistake was George Bush's invasion of Iraq in uh, just after the first year in the presidency. So we haven't seen that kind of serious error, which often occurs with new presidents, particularly inexperienced presidents. So I'm not sure that we're home safe yet, but the signs are more encouraging than one might have expected. I suppose Syria was something of a crisis, the chemical attack and the administration's strike on Syria. I don't really think that's a crisis. I mean, I think it was a, a rapid uh, response to a, a provocation, um, uh, and it was handled professionally. And uh, and uh, uh, I think had we done that five years ago, it would have made a much bigger difference than it than it would today. Um, but it probably does have a deterrent effect about further chemical weapons use, and I don't think it was intended to do more than that. But I do think it's important to recognize that that, that particular situation seems to be handled appropriately with the right people sitting around the table. But until they complete the appointments process, until they have deputy secretaries, undersecretaries, assistant secretaries in the national security establishment, this team cannot handle multiple difficult crises at the same time. There's not enough people. I mean, you know, you can't assemble that group all the time. It was fortunate they were all available, that they were all brief, that they could all meet with the president, that they gave him coherent advice that they could agree on. But if you had multiple crises uh, at different points of the world, um, it would be much more difficult. And so uh, the administration is in a potentially vulnerable position until it fills out its um, national security team. Linda? Um, I would like to add to that. I agree with everything Jim uh, just said. And I think one of the reasons, though, that the personnel have been slow to be named is there is this struggle within the administration uh, between those that um, purport to represent the Trump base and those, I think, that would be leaning toward more professional um, appointments, people with long tenure on the subjects. And it certainly has been uh, reported that uh, Defense Secretary Mattis has attempted he attempted to get two people into that DepSec job, which Deputy Secretary job, which is very critical, um, and the White House uh, turned him down. There have been numerous other uh, cases, and so it's not only important to get people in the jobs, but hopefully get people who are really qualified. Any signs uh, of that is breaking loose? The logjam is clearing? Um, it's just very slow, and mm -hmm. so I don't know that you're going to see uh, suddenly a turnabout in this. Um, but I think that Bannon's, um, Steve Bannon's uh, removal from the standing seat on the National Security Council was one sign that what I would call the foreign policy or national security realists are uh, gaining ascendancy. Uh, and certainly the decision-making process used in reaching the decision to strike uh, at the Shirat Air Base in Syria was a model of that with Mattis, Tillerson, and National Security Advisor H.R. McMaster really running that process in an efficient and professional way with options teed up, options discussed. So all the kind of textbook things you would want to see were in fact happening. But you have still not only struggle over personnel, you've got this rump strategic issues group in the White House led by Bannon with some ideological people there that 
that at least represent a struggle for power and then the president's own family weighing in. And I would also add as part of the churn or chaos that people have seen is the communications policy contrasting with a very tightly run ship by the Obama administration. You've had the president's own tweets that can be at odds with uh, statements coming out from his um, own officials. Also, among those officials, for example, Secretary Tillerson, uh, Secretary of State, and the UN Ambassador Nikki Haley, having different points of emphasis vis-a-vis Syria, should Assad go? Uh, are we putting first the prioritizing the ISIS uh, defeat of ISIS in Syria? So that kind of thing causes great confusion around the world. And and beyond those things, it really is important to get past a show of strength, which I think is what the president may have as his best um, card or best um, claim to success over this first 100 days. They have to get to articulating policies and, and how they interact because a Russia policy is related to a Syria policy, which in turn is related to a counter-ISIS policy. On this question of articulating a policy, Jim, you, you've noticed, you've noted a number of policies that uh, are essentially uh, carryovers from existing policies uh, and that are somewhat at odds with uh, campaign promises. How do you view the current articulation of policy or to what extent is it essential that they be rearticulated going forward? Well, the administration is clearly in a uh, in a learning mode. Tillerson, Secretary of State, is, uh, has never uh, held public office before. The president has never held public office before, uh, and so, in a sense, I find it somewhat reassuring that there that the articulation of formal policy is slow, because I think the articulation will improve as they deal with the real world, recognize its constraints, uh, have more interaction with world leaders. Um, the president's going to Europe. He's going to ASEAN. Uh, he's going to have far more uh, contact with European uh, and Asian leaders. And uh, and so far, those contacts have largely been useful. He seems to have come away with them, impressed with some insights that he previously didn't have, and he's acknowledged that. Um, uh, so um, I, I agree with Linda that uh, that that at this point we're left to sort of guess what the overall policy is based on occasionally contradictory uh, and in any case episodic statements reacting to particular events rather than some kind of structured uh, articulation of broad policy. But I'm I'm content to wait and let uh, and let. Uh, uh, and let reality, let the complexities of the international situation sink in a bit further before we get, you know, a national security strategy articulated by the White House. Very good. Why don't we take our first caller, uh, Tolliver? I'd like you to address the uh, situation with respect to North Korea, and in particular, whether the military option is on the table and, and what, what that means as a practical matter. You know, it, it's hard to say. I mean, clearly, Rhetorically, it's on the table. The, the president has said it's on the table. We've moved forces toward uh, toward the area in a in a show of force. Um, and under some circumstances, uh, uh, the U.S. would respond militarily. Now, whether it would respond with a preemptive strike designed to disarm uh, North Korea, I think that's your question. 
I'm I'm a little skeptical uh, because I think the the, the it that the North Korean nuclear and missile program have gone too far to be taken out with a surgical strike. And I think even if the response is a non-nuclear response on the part of the North Koreans, it would kill tens of thousands of our allies very quickly. Um, and uh, and I think that has to weigh pretty heavily. On the other hand, doing nothing um, is also pretty unattractive. Uh, I think the administration is pretty much back where previous administrations have been, which is pressuring the Chinese to do something about the North Koreans, uh, given that China really has the only meaningful leverage. Um, and there's some uh, indications that uh, that the president, in his conversations with President Xi, um, which have been fairly regular now, um, may have made a bit of progress in that regard. Um, so we'll see. We've mentioned a few ideas that relate to domestic policy, but which clearly could have an impact on foreign policy. Uh, just this week, there's a lot of talk about tax cut, reducing government revenue, potentially, infrastructure spending, at the same time, increased military spending. Uh, what, how do you see these proposals interacting? Well, on the tax cut side, they've apparently dropped what would have been the most what would have been the most controversial aspect, which is a new tax on imports. Mm. Um, there are some logic. I mean, there are some intellectually interesting uh, arguments in favor of, the, of that proposal, but it was politically too difficult, and it, it appears to have dropped. So, I don't know that there's much in the way of an international implication for the president's tax proposals or what what emerges. Um, at least insofar as we know now. Um, uh, uh, domestically, um, uh, I, I, you know, this is, I, I don't think anything on the scale that the president appears to be proposing a, a reduction of, of uh, business taxes from 35% to 15%, uh, a very substantial increase in the deduction that, uh, that individuals can take, which will have a massive effect on revenue, is likely to get through the Congress as, as articulated. But there's enough steam behind it so that something's likely to emerge. But I think it's too early to know what it might be. Linda, what do you think of this mix? Well, I have two uh, comments. One broad comment is I think the president's uh, agenda, such as we have, um, we understand it, and as it was declared in the campaign, uh, really amounts to a lot of spending. A $54 billion defense buildup, a massive infrastructure program and a tax cut that everyone agrees will uh, increase the deficit. So how these things are going to be paid for and what the appetite of a Congress uh, filled with many deficit hawks uh, is a question uh, that I have. Now, it may be that the difficulties of squaring that circle will mean, in fact, Congress prevails and there won't be as big a spending uh, hike. And uh, I think that um, may actually lend some comfort and stability to markets and a number of people that may be looking at this deficit binge uh, with some consternation. On the defense side, I would say there is support uh, within Congress. Certainly, um, John McCain, head of the Senate Armed Services Committee, and uh, Matt Thornberry over on the House side, the Armed Services, uh, supportive of that type of buildup and even more. Uh, but those are the committees that authorize. They are not the appropriators. And I think at the end of the day, we'll have to see. Um, it certainly appears that you need more spending 
than um, the Obama budget to provide adequate force structure modernization and readiness. Um, the service secretaries have been testifying to this uh, for quite a while. So I think there will certainly be um, uh, some degree of increasing in the defense spending. But on the other hand, it is very, it will be to me very interesting to see who comes to the fore to argue against the major cuts being abruited for the State Department, uh, USAID, uh, and other agencies that are critical partners for our national security and foreign policy. And I would expect actually Secretary Mattis to become very vocal in this regard. Yep. yep. Go ahead, Jen. I just add on the. I mean, I think there will be some increase in defense spending, um, uh, among other things, because most of the Trump proposal is was already embodied in Obama's proposals for defense spending. So Trump is proposing to spend even more than Obama was proposing, but Obama himself was proposing a significant increase, yeah. and Trump's is only marginally bigger than what Obama was proposing. So there's clearly going to be some bipartisan support for that, and the question is how it fits in the bigger. Um, uh, overall uh, budget picture. Do you think it would be fair to conclude, based on these dynamics, that there's likely to be more of a dependence on military tools rather than diplomacy? Well, I think that would that would be the conclusion you would draw from the Trump budget, and and that was pretty much articulated and formalized. I mean, even the statements that the budget director and others, you know, suggested this was going to be a hard power budget. Um, I, but as, as Linda has already indicated, it's an open question how far Congress is going to go along with that. I think a number of uh, members of Congress on both parties have, uh, have articulated a need not to cut uh, uh, spending uh, in state and AID, particularly as it affects the, the war on terrorism and the support for allies around the world and countries that are, that are fighting their own domestic terrorism Threat. So uh, I, I think the, the the president's budget was simply an opening bid, if you will. It did indicate the inclination of his budget director, who's always been a budget hawk, and he was apparently given sort of free reign to put the budget together. It's certainly not something that was agreed by the secretary of state, the secretary of defense, the secretary of the treasury, probably doesn't reflect uh, the president's domestic economic advisors. And who knows whether it reflects the president's views as a whole. I think a lot depends on the influence of uh, Secretary Mattis, General Votel, who is the Central Command Commander. I traveled with him for a week at the end of February, one of my trips out in the region, and H.R. McMaster, the National Security Advisor. All three of them, whom I know, uh, have a, a great deal of um, emphasis in their own writings and work on the need for stabilization after major combat. Um, and that that is something that really requires civilian capabilities and funding for things other than military operations to uh, help stabilize these places for the long term. H.R. Uh, McMaster puts it in terms of consolidation of gains. Um, I actually did a bit of work for Mattis um, before I joined RAND, and this was around these um, stability and reconstruction uh, issues. And when I traveled with Botel, one of his main issues that we talked about on the uh, sidelines of our visits to troops and bases and so forth 
um, was this need to get right now some aid into Syria in places where it's not going, where they have retaken areas from uh, ISIS and it is the people there desperately need some help. So I will be curious to see how vocal they uh, become and indeed whether they win that debate internally. Speaking of Syria, Jim, uh, you have made some proposals regarding uh, not exactly partition, but of operating different spheres in Syria. I wonder, have you seen any sign that the administration may be considering such notions? I, I think they were clearly moving toward it, as was the Obama administration uh, until the, the strike uh, on the airfield following the chemical weapons use. And that does seem to have been a, an isolated episode. I mean, the proposal essentially is that the Syrians aren't going to come together on uh, with an agreement on the outlines of a new government or a new structure for governance, that the country is currently divided between areas that are controlled by the regime, areas that are controlled by the opposition to the regime, and areas that are controlled by the Kurds, who are not opposed to the regime, uh, who are, in effect, a third party in this. And the diplomacy has been moving toward halting the fighting, recognizing these lines as at least interim divisions within the country, accepting that um, uh, that the, the regime areas will be uh, supported by Iran and Russia, that the Kurdish areas will get support from the United States, that the other opposition areas will get support from Turkey and, uh, and Jordan, and that one can have uh, a, a, an interim period during which the fighting stops the negotiations about a future Syrian state reunited uh, under some kind of new management can continue, but can continue probably for several years, but with much lower levels of violence. I think that's the most one can hope for. The idea that Assad is going to go at any time in the near or even medium term is unrealistic, um, and the administration seemed to have embraced that. Uh, we're pretty explicit about having embraced it backed away from it slightly after the chemical weapons used, but one, and, and so there may be some sort of debate in the administration, but I think they're verging back toward that kind of solution. Linda, we have an email question from Rob on something that you touched on earlier. He, he's wondering if uh, we could comment more on the direction of foreign aid under President Trump's budgeting and a range of consequences regarding foreign policy and also, also national security. Well, I don't think a lot of people um, who are in studying this in depth are putting a lot of weight on the so-called skinny budget. We're really waiting to see what the actual proposals will be. Uh, but I, I think from what we have gathered so far, there are going to be cuts in um, types of assistance that are not considered core foreign policy uh, interests. Um, and I, I don't know we have a number of positions that supposedly are not going to be filled. It will be interesting to see if Tillerson refashions the department in some way. But I think, obviously, most of our foreign aid budget already goes to just a handful of, of countries, Egypt, Israel, Jordan. Uh, and then a lot of the other aid assistance is actually coming through the OCO budget, the, the um, defense supplemental. Uh, for things like uh, the long-term training and um, support of partner forces that directly goes to the stabilization objective. Uh, I think it's safe to say if the numbers that were put out are enacted, it will gut 
fatally cripple that department's ability to operate. Um, but I, we just have to see what the details are going to be. I would say that the more vulnerable areas are the humanitarian and pure development areas. Things like, uh, you know, the, uh, the the program that supports, uh, you know, HIV treatment in Africa, which has been brilliantly successful, but um, uh, but uh, but is also expensive. Uh, and some of the uh, we now have uh, real famines underway in two countries, Yemen and Sudan, and they're underfunded. The the the, the humanitarian appeals to stop people who are starving thousands a day at the moment. Uh, have been uh, have underachieved not just as a result of American uh, uh, lack of response, but more generally. Um, so I, I think that those areas tend will be more vulnerable. Uh, but but this is going to be sorted out in Congress as a part of a fairly complex bargaining process. It would be nice, just as a two finger add to this, if Congress would take up some of the reform proposals that have been bruited, because you could certainly have more effective humanitarian aid at lower uh, cost. There are, there's a, there are a lot of cuts taken out by the contractors and subcontractors. Um, that would entail a huge and painful reform in the humanitarian aid community, but also the delivery of aid requirements in U.S. law that, that it be um, U.S. products, that they be shipped on U.S. lines, and that they be put into markets when they reach the destination, uh, which actually has a counterproductive effect on those local, mar local producers. So I think that it would be nice if instead of the slash and burn approach, the let's do it better approach might prevail. But again, it would take a a concerted um, effort on the Hill to make things better rather than just eliminate. And I think this is really perhaps much more broadly than our topic today of national security and foreign policy, the question of what this government is going to look like structurally at the end of this uh, administration um, is, is one of the biggest concerns because if the apparatus of government has in fact been not only defunded but actually taken apart, um, that will, I think, create some very significant long-term effects on our ability to uh, execute any types of strategy or policy. I have another email question from Lanny, which is a follow-up to a point that Linda had made earlier regarding the interaction between domestic and foreign policy, and this one is particularly on the wall between U.S. and Mexico. Uh, if built, it will stick a thumb in a foreign nation's eye, but it will also address a perceived U.S. domestic problem, excessive immigration. How, if at all, does our foreign policy apparatus deal with these apparent inconsistencies? I mean, I think there's a there's a debate about whether building a wall is the most useful and effective approach to controlling illegal immigration across the southern border. And I think there are a lot of voices that argue that um, uh, that there are better ways of spending the money that will yield better results, uh, including uh, more enforcement within the country, including more technical means of uh, surveilling uh, possible illegal border crossing. Um, uh, and uh, so I think it's almost certain that a wall that literally extends across the breadth of the southern border isn't going to be built. Um, I think there may be places where fences that currently exist will become walls, and there are places where there are no fences that will become fences, but there will continue to be large areas which will be monitored through other means, um, particularly areas where there are very few uh, people coming across and where the the cost ratio benefit for building a wall to stop the small numbers that actually 
uh, cross in those uh, isolated areas simply doesn't make it feasible. Is it, is it simply a bilateral issue, or does it have broader implications? Well, I think it has uh, much broader implications. That was the point I was going to make. Is you know the ripple effects this combined with the um, you know stopping uh, the various bans on um, people coming from certain uh, countries that keep out sign I think affects the U.S. Um, image. And as we know, the facts really are most of the illegal immigration is due to people overstaying their visas. So similarly to the change in the China stance, recognizing there is not a currency manipulation currently going on, um, it would be nice to have more facts flooding the zone on this. But I have to say there's a little glimmer of light in that the um, the proposed deal here for avoiding a budget shutdown and getting some money into the budget is relying more on technology, sensors and um, surveillance at the border rather than the physical wall. So perhaps there's a way to shore up what what actual problems exist on the border um, and the president can claim that as a victory. Um, and I would say this also goes hand in hand, I think, with questions about the counterterrorism strategy that the administration will eventually come out and announce. Because if it's simply about going out um, and preventing attacks on the U.S. Uh, homeland and possibly on our European allies, that very narrow construct of what it means to um, secure U.S. interests will leave the rest of the world pretty cold. So I think we just we need to understand what is the vision overall for the U.S. leadership in the world. Email from Jim. Question on the Russia issue. Since it appears Russia hasn't gotten the kind of relationship that it might have expected with the Trump election, and it appears the French vote may go the other way for Russia, what would, what would we expect Russia's next moves to be in the next 12 months? After Germany, where would Russia's attention be focused, and what should be the U.S. posture? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I don't know that we can predict at this stage whether Russia will undertake some new initiative like its intervention in Ukraine or like um, its uh, intervention in Syria. Um, uh, both of those were to some degree uh, opportunities that opened as the results of developments, the revolution in Ukraine, the civil war in Syria. Um, are there other opportunities that will open for the Russians? Will they create other opportunities? I don't see uh, a sort of a new field of conflict between the U.S. and Russia. I think the fields of conflict we have are already more than adequate. Um, uh, there is the continued uh, fighting in eastern Ukraine. Uh, the United States is providing modest but real uh, military uh, uh, assistance uh, in terms of uh, non-lethal weapons transfers and training to the Ukrainians. Uh, there clearly is a possibility for uh, clashes and conflict in Syria. Um, there are also possibilities for negotiated um, uh, resolutions of those issues or at least amelioration of those issues. And it's in some ways unfortunate that the domestic issue about Russian interference in our election has created such a blockage to actual communication with Russia that we can't ex explore some of those because I think there were some opportunities that are now at least for the medium term, foreclosed about cooperation in areas where there might have been some potential. I think the Russians are in a serious uh, situation. They'll continue to try to interfere in European domestic politics. 
as they have tried in the French case and are trying in several other cases. Uh, but so far, the, those efforts have not yielded results. Um, and so far, Europe is holding together, and the populist wave uh, in Europe has, uh, if not reached a high mark, at least has not breached the dikes in any of the countries where where there appeared to be a danger, Austria, the Netherlands, France. Uh, there are, of course, countries that have gone toward more nationalist uh, politics, uh, Britain being one and uh, Hungary being another. I would just add quickly, I think that there is every sign that Russia will continue to press for greater influence in the Middle East. Um, they've gotten involved in Libya. Uh, they're trying to, I think, expand their influence. And just when I was in Syria, their overflights were preventing um, counter-ISIS targeting that some of the units I was with were attempting to do. And I think that they will will push until there's a clear U.S. policy, not that the policy has to be bellicose. I think that there's every uh, reason to try uh, to to have a firm diplomatic a policy with regard to Russia, work where the interests align, but not uh, allow a lot of the things that Russia has been doing behind the scenes, and certainly not accede to the annexation of territory. And I think that that there probably is, um, certainly again in the in the case of the military officials at senior positions in its administration, very strong backing for that kind of nuanced policy. I just add that the one area that Russia could become more problematic. And uh, and make life difficult for the United States would be Afghanistan, where in general they've been supportive of American efforts in Afghanistan since 2001. They're now more ambivalent. They have some contacts with the Taliban. There are some rumors that they may actually be providing some probably quite limited support to the Taliban. Our so-called ally Pakistan is much more of a problem in that regard mm -hmm. um, than than either Russia or Iran are. But uh, Russia could make life more difficult for us if it chose in Afghanistan. That's a possible pressure point. Very good. I'm glad we hit on Afghanistan briefly at the end. Thanks, Linda and Jim, for your time and insights. Thanks to our Policy Circle and RAND Next members and friends for joining on this call. If you'd like more information on upcoming Policy Circle events or to listen to a podcast, please visit RAND.org or contact us directly at policy underscore circle at RAND.org. This concludes our call. Thanks for participating. Have a great day. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about these issues and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries.